0: My name is Hemishul and I'm the founder of Group and the host of Let's Talk Quality. Let's Talk Quality is a podcast aimed at quality assurance professionals in pharma and biotech. Join us to learn from some of the best QA leaders around the world and hear how they've developed their careers as they provide some practical insights into how they've got to the top of their field. Our mission is to shine a light on what good quality assurance really means for pharma and biotech. What impact does it really have on the patient? We want to explore some of the biggest challenges facing the sector and inspire the next generation of quality assurance leaders to continue to help bring safer and better quality therapies to patients. Welcome to season one. I hope you enjoy the show. Amnon. Good morning. Good morning. or uh, Good morning where you are. It's afternoon here. Uh, How are you?
1: Very well, thank you.
0: How are you? I'm all right. Thanks, Amnon. I think we spoke for the first time in January. Um, right at the start when I just started the business, um, I remember speaking to you for the first time, and I, and I remember thinking, "Wow, this guy knows his stuff and has a fascinating background in quality." So I thought it would be great to get you on the show. So thanks for Thank thanks you. for joining. Um, I suppose for the benefit of the listeners, uh, could you explain who you are and uh, what your what your current position is, um, and we'll go you? from there.
1: Okay, happy to. Uh, My name is uh, Amnon Eilat. Uh, I'm originally from Israel, Tel Aviv, uh, but I uh, grew up in the United States as a child, then back in Israel, then back to the U.S. Um, And I've been uh, involved in uh, interest in science and biology and chemistry since I was a child, literally, and um, studied it in high school, then in university, um, and... um, after that, I uh, had uh, gone to work in biotech, uh, did a master's uh, at uh, night school at Harvard University, and uh, worked at Mass General and research on um, bispecific monoclonal antibodies, cancer, other things, and then moved from there into uh, cell therapy, <coughs> excuse me, and I um, other, other types of uh, biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, what's called small molecules, and um, regenerative cell therapy, um, and helped uh, launch certain products for cancer, build facilities, uh, some companies such as Amgen, Eli Lilly, Genzyme, working on larger scale, but also at many small companies. And uh, right now, I'm working for a biotechnology company near Boston, uh, also working on, interestingly enough, bispecific monoclonal antibodies, because it took up all these years until the technology could be humanized and, and done properly for human therapy. And it's great to know uh, being used also
0: to treat cancers and other diseases. Amazing. Well, we'll get into all of that. But I suppose when we first spoke, um, we had a good conversation about. This phrase, phase appropriate quality assurance, um, and I know that you've got quite an extensive history and, and background and knowledge in the matter. So, um, and it's a, it's a it's a phrase that I've heard a lot that a lot of people would use. A lot of people in, in biotech um, using it, and it seems to be um, fairly common at the moment, um, especially in in clinical stage, preclinical, um, as as companies go through commercial. So Mm -hmm. uh, what exactly is phase appropriate quality and and what does it mean to you?
1: All right. Well, it means that the GMP, good manufacturing aspects of quality and other quality systems, because people have to remember that uh, to develop a drug, uh, there are multiple formal regulated quality systems, uh, starting with good laboratory practices, which describe how Testing labs for toxicity and safety of drugs need to operate and document and and behave. And then we have uh, the good manufacturing practice, which are regulations and guidances on how to uh, make uh, drugs, pharmaceuticals, devices, um, which are not necessarily specific for a typical drug, but again, behavior related to... uh, documentation, following procedures, uh, validating processes, validating equipment facilities, et cetera. Uh, And um, then we have the good clinical practice related to how to run clinical trials and the data on how to treat patients um, ethically, protect the uh, welfare, safety, and rights of patients. And then we also have additionally good uh, vigilance practices relating to tracking of drug safety once it's commercial. But uh, a lot of these terms did not exist. Well, they did not exist in general. Good manufacturing practice came about in the 70s after cases of injury and death uh, from people uh, receiving um, medical materials by infusion that was not sterile. And FDA investigated and found that people, the processes people were doing were not exactly always what they thought. You know, maybe you had a big autoclave sterilizing thousand bottles of some infusion material and at that time bottles were still used a lot uh, or smaller bottles of drugs and maybe it was sterilizing things on the outside but not on the inside of that big uh, i mean the shelves of the cart and they realized that was across all kinds of processes cleaning documentation you could have residual of a hard drug in equipment and uh, then uh, the next batch next day they they thought they'd clean it and they'd put in a uh a cancer drug, and then you'd have one drug mixed in with the other. So there was a real need for clarifying these practices. And then they also found out the same thing for the toxicity labs, the tox studies. The labs were not organized well, not treating the animals well, the data was not reliable. They put those in place. And again, for clinical, they found that uh, clinical trials were being run chaotically and inconsistently and not really uh, considering the... Uh, health, safety, and welfare of the patients, and uh, and in many of these cases, even fraud. So, these things developed reactively, but later additional guidance was added to be more clarifying, proactive, etc. Now, for GMP, uh, the problem was that many large companies, uh, especially ones that had, had bad investigations by health authority or a re- regulatory agency like FDA. Uh, which caused uh, fines uh, or even consent decrees, which are court orders demanding companies do certain uh, remediation activities under supervision of a third party that the company has to hire to make sure that they're doing things right until FDA says, we trust you to do it on your own. So some of those companies wound up their quality system so tight, it was cumbersome, challenging, difficult to operate, to, to really manufacture. Uh, And when anything becomes cumbersome, difficult uh, to operate, people will make mistakes, people will not understand, or people will simply not be able to do it, yet still have to go on their work. They want to keep their jobs, right? So I, uh, when I joined Eli Lilly, Eli Lilly did not get a consent decree, but there were several large companies, especially in sterile aseptic fill uh, factories, or that had those, that were being... um, confronted with uh, many observations on their inspections, warning letters, and consent decrees. Now, Lilly did not get a consent decree because they had, were forthright in a very ethical company, and they went to the FDA and said, head of manufacturing, head of quality, and the CEO, saying basically, we, we agree with your observations, we will fix our problems. Uh, most of the other large companies didn't, and the FDA told them, you're the first large pharma that came to us and said, we will fix things rather than argue with us. So they did that, but when I got there, I was told that uh, it was very difficult, especially in the clinical product, what's called the clinical product development domain, that uh, they were being demanded to follow the commercial procedures, which really were for commercial drug, drugs that are fully developed, fully tested, fully validated. And um, I said, that's really not, it's not really good when I see something that's not logical, not scientific, or not ethical. But let's say in this case, I said, we have, to, we have to do something. And I got permission for us to sort of build a moat around the development. Because we were making small molecule drugs, biotech drugs, uh, building new facilities. Very active, but it was very difficult, very difficult to do it. And uh, because of these overburdening uh, procedures and requirements, and we created a development quality system. Vince Matthews, was our internal client, we have, uh, excuse me, internal uh, consultant, and we had people at at various levels as internal consultants. And uh, we had some help from some people that I'd worked before with Amgen, at Amgen on policies and created a development quality system. So that was adopted and they liked it so much, they actually adopted all those procedures for their commercial quality system. And then there's just maybe 20% that's really just for late phase commercial product. And after we did that, I said, well, you know, I was very active in the PDA, Prenteral Drug Association. And I said, you know, let's see if we can get some of the peers together, people I know, consultants, other quality people from small biotech, large biotech, big pharma, and we'll do that. And the FDA had started talking to people about it because they saw that, that, here's the paradox. If you put too much control over something and too many procedures and too complicated, you actually end up um, affecting quality because, as I mentioned, either people will not know how to follow it properly or try to do shortcuts because they can't get their work done otherwise. Or, um, you know, basically uh, the resources spent on what really impacts quality, you know, writing a good procedure rather than a big procedure, having enough people to oversee facilities in the plant, rather than running around trying to write and read and interpret very difficult, complicated, burdensome policies, you actually will reduce potential equality. Because you will dilute your resources on what is not as important. So by having this development approach, the FDA started realizing that too, that these companies were doing stuff for early phase, and it was making it challenging for them to develop their early phase clinical materials. And so much effort was being put on it, they were actually failing in other areas of quality and oversight. You need this army of people all focused on too much of too complex things. So they were calling it a graded approach at the beginning and I felt, well, graded doesn't really, it's not really clear what that means. And I, and I said, well, why don't we call it phase appropriate? So we, we, you know, amongst ourselves, we agreed at Lilly and then amongst the people on this team for technical report, what was called technical part 56 at the PDA. So we said, let's call it phase appropriate, application of phase appropriate GMPs. And uh, I contacted colleagues that I'd worked with at the FDA, actually on the manufacturing sterilization side, uh, Rick Friedman, the director at the uh, uh, FDA basically uh, assigned people to us because there were people who were really writing the GMPs and interpreting them. And we ended up having four different FDA people on the project at different times. Uh, people from all kinds of companies, Baxter and um, big small biotechs uh, in our area and across. We, we had input from the MHRA, uh, which are the English uh, regulatory agency and health authority and even from the Paul Ehrlich Institute, sort of equivalent of the NIH in Europe, and came up with Technical Report 56, which had a very long name, application of uh, phase-appropriate GMP and quality systems to the uh, development of a clinical uh, biotech bulk drug substance, and uh, spent several years working on it. I thought it would be done in a couple of years. We spent about Four or five years working on it, and finally issued it in nineteen in two thousand and twelve. I'd already moved out of Lillian back to a company in, in near Boston, in Cambridge, and um, that was approved and was well received.
0: Brilliant. Uh, so. You, you, you won't take credit for this, but you essentially coined the phrase <laughs> phase I will tell you this.
1: I, I know at <laughs> least for the people involved in this project, I coined the phrase. It's hard for me to believe that other people didn't spontaneously yeah. think of it that way and call it that yeah. way because you know, you have the phases, you have preclinical phase and yeah. you have the toxicity phase and you have the phase one, two, three. But yes, in this case, I felt that that was just more appropriate because people could align it with already phases yeah, yeah. that existed and that they knew yeah. of in the development of, uh, of clinical drugs. And even though it is, is specifically for bulk drug substance or API for biotech drugs, most of the things there, the practices and behaviors uh, in this, um, and it's not a formal guidance. In fact, we can't call it a guidance. That's a regulatory document. But uh, as FDA said, let's call it best practices, yeah. is that um, it can help people across uh, different types of modalities. And just so, the stuff that's specifically biotech, you do yeah. for biotech.
0: So, depending on the phase of development, how would someone in your position go about deciding the extent to which quality needs to be implemented? Um, like, what factors do you need to? Does someone who's leading a quality function need to consider when implementing phase-appropriate quality? Well, I think first thing,
1: uh, everybody has in general. The recommendations we have in TR fifty six, which by the way, for the year and a half we are rewriting it, updating it for modern times, modern terminology, and adding a lot of things that have developed along the way. There's some things we required that maybe we took off, other things that we are adding, emphasis on process validation from you know, or at least process knowledge from early stages. So if you're 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 so the FDA wanted something else. We were thinking, well, for the big pharma, big biotech, let's make life more logical, simpler, and in that way, actually improve quality and everybody's quality of life at work Who are working on these things. They said, you know, that's good, but we want this also be to help inform people in startups, in small companies, academic institutions. We're now building biotech facilities, University of Oregon, other places. Uh, And uh, so we need it also to be for the people who don't know what they know and don't know what they should know. About how to develop a drug properly, so it has advice there. How to good practices for um, for research documentation. There's no, there's no guidance for that. There's no regulation yeah. for that. But if you do it poorly, don't document it well. Uh, yeah. Don't at least calibrate your equipment. You're, you're, you may fail later or have to redo work at a great cost. Even sometimes the cost of your company failing if it's one of those tiny startups with one product and suddenly you find that part of your research you lost the documentation you need to use to now start uh, proving to the uh, submission, submitting a, a new drug application, uh, or, or what in, in the Europe uh, is called an IMPD, Investigation of the Product Dossier. And so we added that, and and then uh, you know it was great. We had excellent people, and if people look into Terra 56 uh, at the PDA on their website, there's all the names of the people, so many that it would take me very long to to mention them, peers, people from the FDA. In fact, uh, one of the people who was from the FDA representative on our team in the later uh, few years of the project, he's a consultant now and he's on the current project. So we have this continuity, we have a new representative from the FDA on the team and uh, we're actually getting close to the point where we uh, may be submitting it for review by the PDA and then by uh, other um, health authorities.
0: So, part of this podcast series is to um, help, I suppose, shine a light on quality and its importance, its significance that it plays in, in both business and the wider society. Um, I'm sure that you've got many, many examples, um, real world examples of this. But could you could you share maybe a, a one example where um, implementing phase appropriate quality or um, you know, where you've come in and made an impact on, on, on the, the current quality standards, where it's had a, an impact on business performance and, uh-huh. um, you know, getting, getting, getting a therapy to, to patients, I suppose, essentially.
1: Well, you know, when I, when I joined Eli Lilly in 2003, as I said, things were so wound up tight from a quality perspective uh, that uh, I, when I first joined there, uh, for example, um, I was actually asked... By the uh, the new um, head of the overall product development there, both small molecule, large molecule, Bill Heath, brilliant, brilliant, and lovely man who had come over from R and D, took over that, and Lily understood they had to change the way they're doing things, and um, asked me, you know, we have a product, it's a it's a monoclonal antibody for Alzheimer's, and we only had so much material, we just did a fill, and it was rejected. Uh, by the quality representative. He said, we, have, we don't have the cell line. It's with the contractor that we don't work with anymore. Um, and we had some issues with the fill. We have tested it. We feel the product is, you know, could be used, but it has been rejected. And if it is rejected, that clinical trial is over. There'll be no uh, Alzheimer's, uh, bio, you know, biotech antibody product. And I did an investigation, and I found in the investigation that, yes, there were some errors made, but they were done with the testing and some uh, omissions, but not on the product itself. And they had added additional testing, and I discussed with that quality rep who came from a big pharma in New Jersey. And I told him, and I said, listen, uh, you know, I've investigated this, and this product is fit for use. He said, but it violated the GMPs. I said, yes, but it's fit for use. He said, I agree with you. And it was like I couldn't get through to him that we had to use science, compliance, reasoning, right application of the regulations, that even the FDA says if you have evidence to show that something works, something is safe, even if the test is maybe different than expected or you found another way of proving it, that's okay as long as your data is good. I wrote a report, I went back to my boss uh, Eric uh, was the, uh, the head of the, uh, the uh, biotech uh, uh, product development uh, quality and we released it back and went into clinical trials. Now, I'm, I don't know if that's the same antibody that Lilly recently released for Alzheimer's. I know they're working on several, but all I know is I felt really good that I was able to take something that would have simply killed a program and put it back properly. And uh, and then a lot of things in small companies that have gone through the other way around, they want to do shortcuts. They some companies don't even bring quality in formally. They just use some consultant, and they're already in clinical trials, phase one, phase two, and they don't have systems in place. They don't have, you know, a system for formal internal for GMP quality for quality system managing your governing documents and tracking things such as deviations and change and uh, and uh, corrective actions, preventive actions, CAPA. And I even hear from some of the people who are on the team right now, they said I talked to my client, and uh, well, they came from a major university, they're brilliant, they have some technology, drug, therapy, they're working, and uh, I told them we have to put in GMPs and ensure that, and they're like, oh, why do we have to follow the FDA's quality system? Can't we come up with our own quality system? And uh, you know, and he said that he, they often, he used this technical report when he was working at a contract manufacturers to show some of these people, this is what is expected. And interesting enough, uh, I heard from an FDA person that uh, told me, we actually use this as a handy guide. In the FDA, they don't use this as a, as a guidance. They don't say, aha, you didn't follow this. But it summarizes everything. And a big thing for me, because I don't like just reading endless pages of, you know, of of verbiage and text, we created a table. And the table goes from research, toxicity studies, phase one, phase two, phase three, and each of those columns in different areas, quality systems, facilities, uh, testing, manufacturing, has what we recommend should be in place. And the the verbiage in the document part, the, the body of the text explains logic, reasoning, why, and then we say what we recommend. And these, Now some of these recommendations completely align with GLP, GMP, etc. But we are just saying, regardless, you must follow the regulations or negotiate with the health authority in your country, with the FDA, we need to do things a bit differently. Is that okay? But this will tell you what should be done. And what we recommend we do it, and we also added the rationale for it now that, you know, you don't do, you don't follow your process and understand its changes in the earlier phases. You may have problems with it later. You may have problems even getting into phase one. Or you'll have problems validating your product. You'll have to redo work at great expense. And I hate redoing things. I'm sure everybody else does. For some companies, they may not have the funding to redo things that they should have done should have documented, should have made sure in earlier phases. And I know, I've worked in companies big and small, and all of a sudden they're like, uh-oh, we have this product, and we found out that something, we thought it uh, some data was this way or that way, and it was a mistake. Someone wrote something wrong, they didn't include a study that was required, they forgot uh, it was done by an untrustworthy uh, contractor, you know, a lab that wasn't good. So by following these best practices and recommendations, there's a, just a greater likelihood of success. But it's again, it's to make sure people don't overdo things. So they focus on what's important for maintaining product safety and, and, and the documentation and all. But also for those people that are like, oh, we did not realize we need to do this. And there are hundreds, thousands of more of these little startups and companies, small molecules, biotech, gene therapy, cell therapy. This can be a guidance for them too, or, or a guide. Yeah to not use the word guidance, a guide for them Yeah. what we need to have in place.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. So with them, um, and this is probably a question that um, people at your level, VPs, heads of quality, et cetera, they um, will struggle to sometimes define the ROI of quality to senior leadership. Um, what what? How do you, as a VP, SVP, chief quality officer, head of quality, how do you manage upwards? So, for example, how do you work with your your C-suite team um, to achieve quality functions? Well, well, what is good is,
1: well, what is challenging is, for example, FDA, when they see failures in GMP, will always start with the quality unit has failed to do such and such. Mm. Let's blame the quality unit. But they realized that this is problematic because what if the quality unit is one person? Or three people and you need 10 what if they do not have the budget or the resources what if management told them you cannot do it this way you have to do it that way so they added an additional guidance and it's also in the guidance and quality systems uh, which is ich uh, which is international consortium of harmonization in u.s and europe and uk and japan that states that leadership of the company senior management of the company is responsible for establishing, supporting, and resourcing the quality unit, the quality system. Uh, so th- the problem is that because the regs that were written about GMPs all talked about quality units, because that time there was no, no nothing even formal called QC in all companies. Manufacturing tested their own product. Oh, didn't work? Well, let's not tell anybody because I want to get my bonus or get promoted or not get fired. Or sacked, as they would say, you know, in the UK, and um, those type of behaviors really lingered even even into the '90s. And um, this can show people what really needs to be done in a way that's easier to follow than having to read uh, five gui- five regulations, and twenty guidances, and then have the consultant summarize it. It's all summarized in there. Now, you, you can't. Uh, how, how would I say? I would say that if you're though, if a head of quality in a company that is not allowing uh, you to operate properly. Uh, and I'm not saying in a way that may have a greater risk because you're cutting back on certain things, but you're still maintaining the basic regulations. A regulation is an interpretation of a law. Just like you have a law that says uh, do not, uh, you know, that burglary will be punished by law, but then there are gu- there, there's a law, but then there's a regulations that say, what does burglary mean? Uh, how much money? Did did you do it with a gun or not? Those things all interpret uh, the law. The regulations, uh, you know, say basically the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, which is the law that says you must make drugs in a safe way and uh, keep them clean and uh, sterile if they need to be sterile and all that. The regulations then, 21 Code of Federal Regulations, they have books on drug manufacturing, device manufacturing, Automobile manufacturing, aerospace, burglary, attack, violence, etc. These things, fraud, uh, financial things, that 21 CFR is basically about uh, things related to drugs and medicine and devices. So um, they are basically violating the law. So I think people need to influence them. This guidance, as I was told, was used to go to people and say, look, this is what we need to do. Um, and uh, But ultimately, if someone is in quality or in any GMP role and their company is violating the regulations and doing things in a way that uh, potentially are creating uh, unsafe drugs or drugs that cannot be documented as safe, and from the FDA, that's the same. Maybe your drug could be safe, but if you don't have documentation to prove it, their motto is, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. So um, I would say that it's not a good place to be in. And obviously, if people see anything that's illegal or dangerous, they have a moral, ethical, and legal right to, you know, to report that, to escalate it in the company to the highest levels, to the company lawyers, to the board of directors. And if there's no response, uh, definitely, uh, if this is something that could injure, uh, or a matter of fraud, uh, f- making fake drugs or false drugs or f- mislabeled drugs, uh, they have to notify the appropriate, uh, you know, authorities in their country.
0: Brilliant. Well, I think there's a there's a lot of stuff in there that quality leaders can probably relate to. Um, but we're coming towards um, the end of the discussion. We could probably talk about this for for a, for a few hours, Amnon. But um, want to end this the conversation on a couple of very quick fire questions. Um, as I said, the purpose is to the purpose of the, this podcast is to help shine a light on quality, but also inspire the next generation of um, quality leaders. So, w- what advice would you give to QA professionals that are going through their journey and and want to progress into a leadership career? Mm -hmm.
1: I would say that it is really helpful to understand the science and the technology of the drug that you're developing and or the therapy treatment. It's very important to understand it, even if one is not a a scientist in, in background there's so much information online you can learn about the basic biology or what is an antibody what is the molecule uh you know what is cell therapy what is gene therapy oh this is what we're making at this stage of our production we're making uh mrna for example oh we're encapsulating it or we're, we're making uh, uh you know insulin what's insulin how is it made what's it's good to understand the process and the product you do not have to be you know, a scientist or a scientist or engineering level understand how the equipment works in general. Otherwise, certain decisions that are made, when things are very clear cut, it's easy to make decisions, but you can actually have this knowledge to both make sure that things are done properly and that uh, material that is not fit for use is not continued in development or ends up with the patients, but you can also ensure that things that are fit for use or problems with a piece of equipment you can help understand this. Really, why this did not have impact on the product, and instead of just relying on someone from engineering or a technician saying yes, it's fine, quality should have enough understanding. Otherwise, you end up oh, violated GMP, throw it out. Oh, this was a uh, quality problem, throw it out. And I'm happy to say that I've saved many more batches of product in my career than I've uh, rejected. And then when I reject product, uh, people don't argue with me because they know they understand why and they know that uh, I've done everything I can to help product go through the process and get to the patients. My, my uh, How would I describe the role of quality, the role of quality, quality assurance, which again, underneath that, there are very, there, there's the GMP quality, other groups, but if we're talking about GMP here now, it, it's our job to ensure the manufacturing of safe and affected drugs and therapies. It's not only to prevent unsafe or inappropriate drugs and therapies from being released. I see it as a positivistic thing. But by ensuring it, we also ensure that things that are not fit for use or mislabeled or mispackaged or whatever, sat in the warehouse at the wrong temperature, are not out there for the patients. So I see it very positive. We're here to ensure that safe and effective drugs get manufactured and become available.
0: Final question. What, what inspires you and what gets you up in the morning?
1: Um, the thing I get greatest satisfaction from in life in general is helping people. I think I, I learned that from my father who, who worked in airlines, El Al, these are airlines, and he, he would help. Family members and the neighbors and people at work and people in the community and uh, and the industry and he himself before he had been a, a volunteer in the in the forties and had joined the British Army as a volunteer and uh, and um, had fought in in Europe and then helped uh, find and, and rescue Holocaust survivors and, and and get them to safety after the war and get them you know into into the appropriate communities and such and. Uh, And I think that just inspired me. So I get great satisfaction from helping people. And when I help someone, you know, unreject the drug that shouldn't have been rejected. And I know that maybe now that's improving the life or saving the lives of people or helping a company not fail, uh, helping people feel better about their work, do their work in a better way, a less stressful way. I find great satisfaction in that.
0: And it's been brilliant. It's been a really... Uh, interesting fascinating conversation inspirational i hope um a lot of people i'm sure a lot of people would get a lot of value from this so um thank you for your time thanks for coming in appreciate your time
1: thank you thank you take care
0: bye thank you for listening to today's show i hope that you got value from it whether you're starting your career in quality or if you're at the top of your field Today's episode was brought to you by RX Group. I'm the founder of RX Group. We are a pharma and biotech recruitment organization focusing purely on quality assurance. We recruit consultants and senior level permanent quality professionals into the pharma and biotech industry. If we can support you, whether that be in a hiring capacity or if you yourself are looking for work, please get in touch with me on LinkedIn, visit our LinkedIn page where you can subscribe to the podcast And visit our website www.rx-group.io to find out more about us. See you soon.